It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, kind sir. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Lifeline, ninth day of October. Yay, because it's actually November. <laughs> Don't know why I said October. Thank you. Moment of momentary lapse in the... Something there. Any event scared you? Actually, be good news. You get a lot more time to shop, much more time before the holidays. But alas, it is, in fact, the 9th of November, and we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Let me start off our proceedings tonight by saying a hearty and extremely heartfelt thank you to all of our KFAX listeners who, over the last 48 hours, have really stepped up to the plate. Um, we said... You know, 750 food boxes for the homeless, needy families. Uh, this Thanksgiving would be a real great thing to do. Well, last count, and we're still counting, uh, we've actually been able to raise enough funds to, pri- to provide 1,000 1, food boxes for needy families this year. So a uh, big round of applause to you. You did an excellent job. We appreciate so much the efforts, the kindness, the generosity, and we'll uh, we'll keep you posted on a report and how things are progressing. All right, let's uh, let's get down to cases here, shall we? to suspect somebody just to casually tuning in driving down the 101 freeway probably just crashed their car uh, if they are a transplant from the former Soviet Union because that in fact is the Soviet Union national anthem and while that national anthem may no longer be played as this year marks the 100th anniversary of um, the Bolshevik revolution the bloodshed the tears, the pain, and the suffering of communism continues to be felt. In fact, it's interesting. Older Americans will recall the Cold War, duck cover and hold drills, concerns that any moment the Soviet Union could unleash nuclear weapons upon us. The irony, of course, is the threat of nuclear attack against the United States by a communist organization remains it's just a different country and quite frankly while some might think that with the collapse of the former soviet union communism passed away in fact it is not only alive and well it is probably thriving better today than it ever has in its 100 year history with losses totaling 100 million people 1 million for every year of its history since 1917. To talk about this ominous 100th anniversary, we're joined now by Frank Gaffney. Frank is the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. He's acted as Assistant Secretary for Defense for International Security Policy during the Reagan administration. And as always, Frank, we are pleased to have you on the program. Pleasure is mine, Craig. Thank you very much for allowing me to contribute to your audiences uh, thinking about 
this really important uh, moment in our history as well as that of international communism. Probably uh, should not be lost on any of us that the president, as, as we speak, is in a communist country, traveling to another communist country, and has been talking about a communist country here as we mark the 100th anniversary of um, Bolshevikism. And uh, toward that end, give us some insights. I, I made reference to a moment ago about those of us old enough to remember the duck cover and hold drills, and we thought with the end of the Soviet Union we could breathe a huge sigh of relief. I think President Bush at the time referred to it as the peace dividend of the collapse of communism, and yet today some would argue that the world is just as threatened by communism as it was even 30 years ago. Well, I think that's true. Um, it, it is not generally understood to be the case because, you know, to be perfectly honest, many of us have, many of us have believed since the Berlin Wall came down that communism was dead. Uh, it, it has certainly been demonstrated to be a totally bankrupt uh, idea, I mean, both literally and, and figuratively in the case of the Soviet Union. But apart from, of course, American academics who have, you know, nurtured uh, a nostalgia for it and been promoting it relentlessly, and others who have been inculcated with this sort of idea of uh, uh, the the virtues of, uh, you know, the redistribution of wealth um, uh, from those who have it to those who need it. Um, Bernie Sanders, of course, comes to mind. But the truth of the matter is, as you said, Craig, that despite the much ballyhooed demise of this uh, horrific, bloodthirsty totalitarian ideology, it has continued to operate um, to some degree in, in its original home, the, uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, but most especially, uh, albeit with some uh, expedient mutations in communist China and communist Vietnam, and of course, communist Cuba, and somewhat communistic uh, Venezuela, and not least communist North Korea. And you you think about the millions and millions and millions, millions actually, of people who are still under the repressive yoke of communism, and you realize that uh, far from being dead, it is... Uh, perhaps, as you've argued, um, not only with us, but even more of a threat today than it was in the past. And you have to wonder, when you look at the rise of the economic and military strength of the world's leading communist power, that, of course, is communist China, um, you almost have to wonder if the ghosts of Stalin and Khrushchev don't look down or look up, as the case may be, at what has transpired in China in the last 20 years and say, hmm, how come we didn't think of that? Well, they did think of it to some extent, but of course the Chinese have, uh, in their uh, clever way, uh, found how to uh, exploit uh, by a kind of mercantilism um, a, a variation. It's in. I think it's probably more accurate to describe it as fascism than true communism. Uh, but it, it that's the economic side of the house. The political side is still uh, very much the the kind of repressive, um, centralized, 
and elite-driven power structure that um, has the rest of the population, the so-called uh, vaunted proletariat, enslaved for all intents and purposes. Uh, a little bit less, perhaps, because of some opportunities to make money uh, as individual citizens, but still politically enslaved. And, and if I could just take one one moment to describe a particularly horrific way in which that enslavement is manifested, Craig, you're all... I'm sure your audience is all familiar with the, the so-called one-child policy of China. Absolutely. It has in recent years been uh, amended to make it more or less a two-child policy, but it still depends upon a, a centralized control, literally, of women's reproductive organs. And there is an entire apparatus in the Chinese communist power structure that monitors these women's, you know, uh, menstrual cycles, uh, that inspects them on demand, and that if one is found to be pregnant without permission, can not only uh, cause you to have a forced abortion, but they may even take away your sexual reproductive organs as well. And and that entire apparatus, there's a marvelous woman by the name of Reggie Littlejohn, who has done incredible work documenting this phenomenon uh, in the, uh, I believe it's called Women's Without, Women Without Borders. That's right. Uh, we, we've, in fact, Reggie has been a frequent guest on this program. Absolutely. Fantastic woman and, and doing really important work. But I, I really didn't appreciate this uh, sort of operationalizing of the one or now two-child policy, um, and that tells you a lot about the way the communists work and and still work very much to this day in communist China. If you've just joined in our conversation, Frank Gaffney is with us today, president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy and former Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy during the Reagan administration, offering some insights today on what is kind of a lackluster marking of the 100th anniversary of communism. And I say lackluster because, as I'm sure it's being celebrated in some corners of Moscow today, certainly throughout China, Vietnam, Cuba, perhaps to a lesser degree, North Korea, which is kind of an odd mixture of pseudo-communism and Juche leader demagoguery and and dictatorship. But nevertheless, it, it is not entirely being appropriately recognized. And I say that because in the wake of the 100 year anniversary lies the blood of over 100 million Individuals, And that sounds like such an exaggerated, unbelievably staggering number. How is that possible? Then you begin to realize with the programs and the purges that happened in communist Russia alone under Stalin, he alone accounts for upwards of oh, different estimates, 30 million, some say as much as 50 million of those throughout the Soviet Union territory who lost their lives directly because of Stalin, then add to it all of the other countries in all of the other years, and suddenly you arrive at this staggering 100 million who have lost their lives. And while you would think, we've learned our lesson, we've turned from that, 
Sadly, not only does communism thrive in some countries, but it's even beginning from an ideological standpoint to once again gain a foothold in our own country. We'll talk about that as we continue our conversation with Frank Gaffney right after this. 516, let's get you quickly updated on traffic. Ted Asrigatu's got the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Ted? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For perhaps a good portion of 20th century history, the world, I think, typically regarded fascism, certainly Nazism, as being responsible for creating the lion's share of death, mayhem, and pain throughout Europe. But the utter irony is that while you can look at the upwards of 50 million people that died at the hands, directly or indirectly, during World War II of the Nazis and fascists, they were just getting started compared to communism. As we mark the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, we are joined today by Frank Gaffney, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, taking a look at the utter irony that for all of the history, all of the blood that has been shed, Frank, as you suggest, sadly, in the modern world today, we don't seem to totally grasp the threat of communism. We fail to recognize countries like Vietnam and certainly China and Cuba wholly as communist. And we fail to recognize, too, that some of the, um, some of the ideas of communism um, that, that gave it wings, gave it birth in 1917, are in fact still very much alive today, and most frighteningly so, here in the United States. Well, that's right. Uh, what has been developing inside our own country, uh, most especially as a result of what I think is best understood as the the march through the institutions um, of, of the sort of culture war of the Marxists and, and communists, um, is that generations of Americans, at least two, I would reckon, have been endlessly propagandized about uh, the virtues of communism as well as the abomination that America has been in the world to such a degree that at the very least you've got a kind of cultural relativism that has taken hold and at worst there's an actual affinity on the part particularly of people in their 30s and and younger for the notions of socialism, the idea that you're going to have more social justice because the rich are not going to be, you know, a, a, a superior class with benefits that are denied the working people and all of the stuff that uh, that has been the, you know, the the canon of communism and and you know the other names by which it does business, uh, socialism, uh, democratic socialism, Fabianism, uh, you know, uh, liberalism, progressivism, leftism, whatever you want to call it, fundamentally, particularly as practiced by the, you know, the Sanders uh, sort of ilk and and the academics and, and some of the people who have spawned in the press and elsewhere, uh, you have, in fact, um, you know, a, a continuing generation of this kind of 
ideology and practice, or at least aspiration to practice it, including in countries uh, like ours. And uh, it's a peril to which we're not alive at all, I'm afraid. Yeah, and sadly and ironically here, after we spent uh, upwards of 50-something years fighting the Cold War, it kind of uh, petered out with a whimper, and we thought it was all dead and gone. I think many of us that understand the, the realities of the danger of the ideology that lies behind communism breathe a collective sigh of relief, and then we completely forgot about it. And now as a result, there's one, maybe two generations, as you suggest, that know nothing of the history of communism. And, you know, it's the old adage, it looks good on paper, but then when we take a look at communism in practice, uh, moving from the theory of, hey, let's all share and share alike, well, I mean, at a level, we could almost suggest that, gee, well, those kind of ideas are even supported biblically. And yet, it is the, the, the fundamental ideology behind communism that ta- fails to take into account man's own sin nature that makes this so terribly problematic. And we have 100 years this year of communism that, in fact, proves all of that. Here's the big question, Frank, as we've been kind of lulled into a false sense of, well, they can't be all bad. Uh, What do we need to do in order to reset the reality of the potential threat, particularly as we see the rise of mega powers like communist China and the ongoing, ever-increasing threat of the nuclear threat provided by North Korea? Yeah, and let's not forget Russia. As and well. Russia, that's okay. right. It's uh, it's not uh, formally a communist state, um, but it, it kind of reorganized after going through bankruptcy. Former that's former head of the KJB deal. is running the joint now, so you know that can't Bingo. be good. It's a kleptocracy, but you know that was a hallmark of communism too. Um, I think the first thing is to be clear, Craig, about the nature of of the threat. This uh, you know abiding festering ideological uh, nightmare represents and and while we talked about you know the 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 generations of Americans that have no real grasp of involved here uh, one thing we could very usefully do is listen to those in Eastern Europe what uh, Dom Rumsfeld used to call New Europe uh, or, for that matter, defectors from places like uh, communist China or North Korea or Cuba, who can attest to what this is really like, as you say, not on paper, but in practice. What it means to be subjected to collectivization, the end of you know the individual and the kinds of rights that we take for granted in our country, because they're guaranteed in our Constitution, or at least they have been till now. Uh, but the more that we succumb to the notion that the, the uh, whatever has passed is, is no longer relevant, uh, what matters now is, is kind of um, being hip and cool and getting with the program um, a la Bernie Sanders and, and his followers during the 2016 election, um, we are going to find ourselves... Um, not only, I believe, unlearning the lessons of history and ignoring the warnings of those who know better, but really exposing ourselves uh, in the most direct way to mortal peril. 
as our Constitution, uh, you know, and our freedoms and our individual character as a as a republic um, is 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 lost. And we mustn't let that happen. And, and sadly, we can kind of get fixate, fixated on the cultural aspects or the economic benefits of um, China, or uh, we perhaps, uh, you know, uh, kind of begin to think, gee, Russia can't be all that bad. I watch RT, and they just seem to be as hip and together and with it as we are. And yet the ideology that is behind what drives these countries is as dangerous today as it ever was, and all one need do is spend a bit of time in the wrong places to see that firsthand, if not experience that firsthand. I know what it's like to be in China and be followed by the um, secret police and be worried about hotel rooms being bugged. I know what it's like to be detained at the border for smuggling contraband in that you and I would be the Bible, and I have seen the utter blackout of information in a closed country like North Korea, and I got to tell you, in none of those circumstances is it pleasant, and in none of those circumstances do you ever want to supplant one iota of that ideology here to America. To do so brings about tremendous threat and great peril. Important lessons today from Frank Gaffney, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Frank, always sobering words, but um, I thank you for reminding us yet once again the sobering realities of what we face when we take these matters of history and lessons thereof lightly. Frank Gaffney, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, on the web at centerforsecuritypolicy.org. 5.30, let's get another lesson, not so much in history, but current events, with Ted Asrigatu, a look at your ride home this Thursday from the KFAX Traffic Center. Ted. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We as Americans have a tendency to set aside special days, special weeks, special months to either remember, dedicate, or raise awareness to a whole variety of issues. In fact, if you look at some of these calendars that Hallmark puts out, it seems as if almost every day of the week is unique or special in one sort or another. But there is one month in particular when an effort toward raising awareness takes place that I think we need to take very seriously, and that is during the month of October just passed and annually during that month, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. When you begin to realize that one out of eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer, it can be a sobering reality, especially if you're not one of the seven. My next guest tonight knows firsthand exactly what that is like, you might perhaps remember both the face and certainly the voice. She spent some of the best years, in fact, on Saturday Night Live, some of the best years of, of um, the series. Um, first discovered and appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, made over 20 guest appearances over the course of a number of years and best known for her starring roles six seasons on Saturday Night Live from 1986 to 1992. She's just written a new book called Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer. We know her as Victoria Jackson. Victoria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
Do we have a good connection? We got a good connection, and we're going to con- connect it even better in the course of our conversation today, and and hopefully connect. A lot of your personal experience, both the upside and the sobering side, with many of our listeners tonight, that I think, you know, we we hear about it, maybe we see some of the campaign ads during the month of October concerning Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but it's not until a woman is really faced with the reality of that gotcha surprise moment do I think they really take seriously the fact that, wow, I could be one of those eight. Yes. It's very shocking. Uh, Cancer doesn't run in my family, and they say the statistics prove that um, most of the breast cancer patients do not have cancer in their family. So it really is a sense of sort of rolling the dice, and it means that we have to be very proactive at a lot of levels. And I had to laugh reading reading your devotion. I, I, I went through an experience myself. Um, yours was in November of 2015. Mine was in December of that same year. You had a double mastectomy mm-hmm. and I had um, colorectal surgery that uh, took my colon. Uh-huh. I, I now have a semicolon as a result. And I, I, I had uh-huh. to laugh reading your book and you made comment about the fact that once the reality of the diagnosis hit you, you began noticing, as I did, it seems as if everything around us has some connection to cancer. If you thought that you should better to drink green tea instead of coffee because coffee has evidence that it creates cancer, then you read that green tea also creates cancer, and suddenly you realize there's nowhere I can go, there's nothing that I can do without fear of somehow getting in contact with whatever it is that caused my cancer. Right. You're like super aware of health and eating healthy and being healthy, but you're kind of overwhelmed and no one really knows the cure or how it happened. And it's a whole scary, weird world. And then I became aware of of so many people who are suffering, you know, of so many different things. And the Bible became so much more real to me. It's instead of words on a page or n- nice little sayings, it, it becomes, you know, your rock that you have to lean on so you don't just fall apart. And, and, and the great thing was that, you know, my faith was tested and it actually proved to myself that I really do believe in Jesus. And he really was there in the room with me when I was laying in a fetal position with poison in my veins from chemo. Uh, Jesus was there with me. I was peaceful and happy, and he was enough. You talk in the book about the fact that you were raised in a Christian home, so certainly you were no stranger to church life, the Bible. Um, You maintained involvement throughout your career with the church, and yet you, you, you make note of something that I found was quite fascinating. So sometimes a diagnosis of cancer can drive people in one of two directions. In your case, your cancer diagnosis drove you closer to God on a pathway for a tighter relationship. And yet you reveal in the book that one of your former Saturday Night Live cast members, Julia Sweeney had just the opposite experience following her cancer diagnosis. Why do you think that is? Wow. Yeah, she became an atheist and uh, wrote a play about it called, and God, no, she wrote the first play called, and God said, ha, 
that, that was about her getting cancer. And her next play was Letting Go of God, uh, her journey into atheism. I think the difference between her and I is that when I grew up, I was taught really strong Bible training. I went to a Bible college. We read verses in Greek and Hebrew. We dissected every Bible verse. I memorized it in my Christian school, and I I know the Bible so well. And her Catholic upbringing, they don't really emphasize the Bible, which is the Word of God. It's powerful. It's living and breathing. They don't, Catholic churches don't emphasize that. And then in her play, she mentions that she went to take a course on the Bible, and they told her that it was myths and fairy tales and metaphors. And so I think that's the difference. And ironically, for many of us, that becomes the very rock that gets us through this kind of an experience. For some, I guess, looking to assign blame or wondering why God didn't rescue them ahead of time or or allow this cup to pass, so to speak, turns to anger toward God to the point of then convincing themselves that he no longer exists. Right. And the best example, when we're suffering, a friend of mine had a worse thing happen than cancer. Her little son drowned in their backyard pool. Mm. And I think that's more painful. And the only thing I could think of was the verse when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Lord, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And that's, that's the only verse I could think of that would explain the mysterious things of life. Also, our life is a vapor, and whether you live to 100 or 14, it still goes by really fast. And and God says over and over again, you know, there's eternity, you know, spend eternity with me. This life is short, no matter how long it is. I was just reading the other day, Methuselah lived to 900 and something, and and the Bible verse says, and then he died. (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking, he lived 900 years, but he died, you know. And, and when we try to deal with this, and, I, and you talk about this in the book, the, the struggle to try to make sense, and I think it's, it's natural whether we're talking about cancer diagnosis, the premature death of a child, as you mentioned a moment ago, anything that happens along in life that that feeds us a bitter pill, we try and figure out what's going on here. We either want to assign blame or wonder, was it our lifestyle that caused it? Was it genetic? Is God punishing us? You make reference to John 2 and 3, where uh, the blind man appears before Jesus. And as he's ministering to the blind man, his disciples ask him, well, Lord, who sinned here? Is it the blind man who sinned or his parents? And sometimes the answer to that question, as it was in the case of John 9, 2, and 3, was a much bigger answer, wasn't it? Yes, he said it was for for my glory, for God's glory. And we look at that and we say to ourselves, well, in all this pain and agony, how can God get any glory out of this? Did, did you struggle through that question with your diagnosis, Victoria? Well, I was 58, uh, no, I was 56 when I got diagnosed, and I was thinking, I'm about due for some tragedy, because my life has been blessed. I mean, it's not perfect, but, you know, some people are raised in countries where there's no freedom, they're starving, 
they, they you know, there's beheadings and things. I, I was so blessed to be uh, born in America and, and raised in a Christian home. And so I thought, I'm about due for a tragedy. Um, and then my next thought was, what did I do, you know, wrong? Because I have sins. And then I thought, is he punishing me? And then I thought maybe it could be used for his glory. And I was thinking, you know, the most powerful testimony of a Christian is when things are going bad. Because if, if you're a Christian and you say, Jesus is the answer, and Jesus loves me, and everything's great, and nothing's bad in your life, that, that doesn't really affect people. But if you have cancer or something terrible, and you say, Jesus He's giving me joy and peace, and he's real. That's a lot more powerful of a testimony. So I remember <clears throat> laying in bed for five months of chemo, and I, kn- I knew the verse that God can make beauty out of ashes, and I know Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So I was like, you know what? God could make something great come out of this. Maybe I could write a book about it, and maybe... You know, some of my fellow Saturday Night Live friends who I never see, and we don't have hardly anything in common, and we are all in different cities, but maybe as they're approaching old age or death, they could, you know, maybe read my book and say, oh, God, it might be real. And, um, you know, if my life, if I had one person that turned their head towards Jesus, then my life would be meaningful. So I, I was thinking those kind of things. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, the, the experience is not only important in terms of being able to more effectively communicate our faith, as you suggest, but also very effective at deepening our own relationship with the Lord. I mean, when you get down to being wheeled into that room as you're watching the ceiling tiles pass by you and you're wearing a shower cap ready to go in and, and go under the knife, literally, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to come out on the other side, or if so, which other side, um, those are the moments when you, when you really realize how important your faith is to get you through. And one of the reasons, as Victoria mentions, that she wrote the book, Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer, is to not only acknowledge that there is hope, but also, too, to introduce you to the one that is the source of that hope. We're going to take a brief time out. I want to come back to more of our conversation. Victoria, stay with us, if you would, dear, for a moment. We're going to come back with more. Victoria Jackson with us. You know her from Saturday Night Live and the Johnny Carson Show, today sharing her experience just barely two years ago. In fact, coming up on the two-year anniversary in about a week of her cancer operation for breast cancer and what God has done in and through that experience. Back with more of our look at Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer. Right now, let's quickly get you an update on traffic. Here's the latest with Ted Asrigatu. Hey, Ted. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're discussing the topic of breast cancer in a very candid book, written by Victoria Jackson. You know Victoria, of course, is one of the stars on NBC's Saturday Night Live. She was there from 1986 through 1992 and uh, made almost two dozen appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. She's detailing her experiences with a diagnosis of breast cancer 
inside of a new book called Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer. And I think, Victoria, as we're talking before the break, it's not just a matter of dealing with the implications of the diagnosis and what all of this is going to mean and dealing with surgery and then uh, chemotherapy, radiation treatment, whatever might be involved. But isn't there a side to this, too, that is, especially for women, I think, physically, emotionally devastating and can also wreak havoc on one's sense of identity and self-worth? I mean, I've had my cancer treatment. They cut out a section of my colon, nobody would know it unless I told them. But in a lot of cases for women, that isn't always the case. Good point. And um, my book is a little too candid. My family thinks I was a little too candid. Uh, But my English professor in college told me um, you, you should always have details, not generalizations. So I was very detailed. Why, why did you um, decide to be so so open? I mean, you, you talk about everything from your, your, your struggles with the diagnosis to, to even some of the challenges in your marriage. Well, I, I wanted to be honest about marriage because my oncologist said that half of the marriages don't survive breast cancer. Wow. And he says that marriages that are hanging by a thread when they go into this, they don't last. And... I think it's hard for the husband and it's hard for the wife because of all of the stuff wrapped up in beauty and confidence and sex and all of that. I mean, even if it's the perfect husband, the wife doesn't feel pretty anymore. And, you know, women have a struggle with beauty and our culture anyway. I mean, so it's, it's complicated tangled thing, but you see, the Bible says over and over that beauty is vain and fleeting and charm is deceptive and um, what does Proverbs 31 say? A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. I mean, the Bible says over and over that women should be modest, and I thought it taught me that. It just kind of reaffirmed to me that beauty shouldn't be the outside and that God values the inside, and I, I, you know, I've been in show business and being a, a raised at, in a gym. Cause my dad was a gymnastics coach. I had a lot of struggles with bulimia and all that comes with being in a leotard in front of people. See, it was very confusing as a child because he, my dad, was a Baptist deacon and a gym coach, and my Christian school was saying, "Don't take." ballet because it's immodest to wear a leotard, and then I was being forced to do flips on a balance beam in a leotard. So uh, one day I came to the conclusion maybe there's a loophole for athletes. I I couldn't figure it out. I was like, but we're supposed to be modest. And so um, this is just reality. It's confusing. The Christian life is, it's hard. It's hard to have pure to live a pure and holy life, no matter who you are. And as you point out, and, too, even even going through a diagnosis, and, and, and I'm, I'm quoting what you said from your oncologist here about weak marriages that typically don't survive a diagnosis of breast cancer, that I guess that also points to the fact that the source of our strength, as much as we even recognize the source of our, of our beauty or our sense of self-worth, really has to come from the Lord, doesn't it? Right. It comes from the Lord, as Sarah Groves sang so eloquently, I live and I breathe for an audience of one. 
and our life should be just devoted to pleasing one person, God. And, you know, I half of my friends, my, all my friends who had breast cancer, half of them, their marriages ended. Uh, two of them went during chemo. And so I wanted to address that because I, I wanted to bring comfort to women so they wouldn't think they're alone. And, you know, I, I never thought I was vain until I had to lose my hair and have a mastectomy. I was like, I think I was a little bit vain because I am not enjoying this. <laughs> and, and I tried all these different wigs of what would make me feel like myself. And that's where the title comes from. I tried pink wigs and purple wigs, and I tried the country club lady look, and I tried the the scarf on the head, and that made me feel like a psychic fortune teller. <laughs> and you know, I wore hats, and I wore I my favorite wig was Pippi Longstocking and Raggedy Ann because that's what I really felt like a broken doll. Yeah. <laughs> My my mother went through a 14-year struggle with ovarian cancer and a, a number of bouts with chemotherapy down through the years. And I'm, I'm laughing because she went through the same phases. Every time she would lose her hair in another round of chemotherapy, out would come another, a new set of wigs or a new set of attempts. And I think in the, in the yeah. last three or four years of her life, she just finally decided bald is beautiful, and that's the way she went. <laughs> I admire those women the most to just walk around bald and I just want that's what I want to do next time. I hope I don't get it again, but if I do, the Lord said my grace is sufficient for thee. And I have that verse up on my wall in my kitchen. As our time winds down, Victoria, what's the big takeaway? You you talk a bit about your your career in show business and uh, the six seasons we mentioned that you spent on Saturday Night Live. Um, but but at the end of the day, in terms of sharing your experience um, in a very intimate way, um, both the experience in dealing with the breast cancer diagnosis as well as your experience, your relationship with Lord, what's the big takeaway that you want readers to walk away from? What I want them to walk away with is that God is real, Jesus is God, and His mercies are new every morning, and that Christians don't have to be sad, you know, about anything, because um, we get to live with Him forever and eternity, where there is no death or sickness or sadness. And so um, the verse that kept coming to me through the whole journey was, for me to live is Christ, makes me cry. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And and that's the verse I want them to take away. And, you know, that sets it all, I think, in perspective, because as Victoria mentioned from the very get-go, uh, we're just passing through here. Uh, our time is a very short one. And even if you live to be 900 years, as Methuselah did, um, when you compare that to all of eternity, that's just a blink of an eye as well. And so having all of this in proper perspective and to understand who our master is and in whom we should believe is really the key to getting through this experience here on earth, whether you're dealing with the day-to-day hassles of life, the loss of a job, unemployment, marital problems, a child that's struggling with drug abuse, or you've been diagnosed with cancer. The good news is that even under the worst set of circumstances from our carnal vision, our carnal understanding, as Paul said, and she so aptly quoted, 
To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Victoria, thanks so much. I I know it's been a serious interview for someone that's a comedian as yourself, but we sure appreciate the time and you being so candid about your own experience. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you so much. And encourage listeners, this is a book that can be a blessing to you, and perhaps you know someone who is going through a diagnosis of cancer of one sort or another, not just breast cancer, but I think this book can be very encouraging. It's called Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer. The book, of course, is newly published by Broad Street. You'll find it at all the usual suspects, Amazon.com and Bay Area Christian Bookstores. There is Victoria Jackson from Saturday Night Live. It is Thursday Night Live from KFAX, and let's get a look at what's going on around here with the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Here's Ted Asrigato. Ted.